Welcome to the latest episode of ORP, the flagship show of the Omen po Comics Podcast Network. On this show, my friend Mike Nunnally and I talk about pop culture, the craft of writing, and a lot more. In this two-part episode, we want to discuss the iconic sci-fi horror series Predator. More specifically, we want to talk about where the Predator series started, since we just don't have time to discuss all five films in this franchise on this episode. Uh, so this time, uh, we'll be covering the first Predator film, as well as the 1989 comic series Concrete Jungle by Dark Horse. And then next episode, we'll be uh, covering the Predator 2 and the Dark Horse comic adaptation of the film. Mike, uh, did you have any opening thoughts on Predator and how you became a fan of the series? I sure do. Um, I became a fan of the series back in the latter 80s, and it was because my dad picked it up, honestly. Um, we watched <laughs> a lot of action and sci-fi and horror movies, and, and Predator just clicked with us. Um, we watched it many times when I was a teenager, up until I was 16 anyway. And uh, I, I just I just loved the franchise, even as an adult. And I rewatched the film somewhat regularly. So I guess I have my dad to thank for making me a Predator fan. And, and maybe my friend, too. But we'll talk about that a little later. How about you, Steve? You know, I don't remember the first time I saw Predator, but I remember it made an impact at the time. Probably I, I saw at least some of the film with my dad, because I remember that he really liked this film. Um, I don't recall him being into horror, but he was a huge fan of action films and war films. Predator has enough of both genres that it worked for him, I guess. Um, I, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but I ended up rediscovering Predator in my teens, and I remember being blown away by how cool it was. I mean, the first movie had Arnold Schwarzenegger at his absolute best, and I suspect that the Dutch character in this film probably inspired the Arnold persona that you see in later films. While I don't think the later films ever quite hit the high note that Predator 1 did, the Predators are all compelling antagonists, even in bad movies, uh, Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. And uh, you get some good <laughs> films in later entries, such as the one of the movies that we'll be discussing this episode. Uh, but Mike, uh, why don't we take a look at where it all started? Did you have any initial thoughts on the original Predator? Um. Predator is actually, I, I know you said it was Arnold at his best, but Predator is actually my second favorite uh, uh Schwarzenegger film I, I I'm more of a fan of Total Recall um that's just one of my but Predator is still one of my all-time favorite action movies um it's so it's so much more than just an action movie though as you mentioned and and we'll get into that a bit more later on but I really love the Predator or Yaucha species uh, and and their culture as an alien species coming to our planet and I think one of the cooler things about them is their mystery uh they are fascinating and I find myself wanting to know more and analyze what little information we see in the movies uh I can't help but think of slashers where they start off with the scary killer and give you just enough information uh, to make the killer more terrifying. Really, they say the most with what they don't say, as our imaginations can explore the intentions or motivations that are at play. And honestly, Steve and I are going to do our best we can do to, to dive into not just the films and the comics, but who the Yauja are. Uh, but for now, why don't we start where it all began, as you suggested, Steve? Sure, let's do it. 
The concept for what eventually became Predator started with a joke that ran across Hollywood in the late 1980s. Though I don't know where the joke originated, the joke went that after Rocky IV, the only person that Rocky Balboa had yet to fight was E.T., <laughs> the extraterrestrial. In any case, the script idea came from brothers Jim and John Thomas, who decided to do a movie uh, that serious, uh, like that seriously, and they just rolled with it. You know, I I find I suddenly find myself wanting to start paying more attention to jokes just in case there might be something awesome like a Predator story in there. <laughs> I think I probably should too. But the Thomas brothers also worked on in other influences when they worked out what the story was. Aliens was cited as one of Jen and John Thomas's influences behind the film uh, because it was about space marines battling against being picked off uh, one by one by deadly extraterrestrial creatures. The other major influence was Rambo First Blood Part 2, probably because Sylvester Stallone was on their minds at this point. And as an aside, I prefer Part 1. But um, popular action films weren't the only influences on Predator. And um, you might like this one, Mike. The Thomas Brothers based the films on classical mythological stories. According to them, quote, there have always been creatures like Predator, the Cyclops, the Minotaur. They represent darkness, unquote. But while this is true, the Predator took it to another level by making the alien a hunter who sees humans as prey. That gave the Predator a primal human element that reflects the darkness in humanity, and that makes it a bit more relatable. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly a little torn about that. I mean, they had me going with there's always been monsters to overcome or to deter. Uh, but they lost me if they represent darkness. I mean, to be fair, and, and just off the top of my head, um, I can only think of the Cyclops that Odysseus blinded and the Minotaur that King Minos put in the labyrinth. Uh, uh, and, and neither of those really represent darkness to me. I think I see what they're trying to say, and I, and I do like the concept. Uh, bring me the head of a Yaucha. Might have made a good labor for Hercules, no? It definitely would have. I mean, Hercules did do a few monster-slaying tasks, like killing the Hydra and the Nemean lion. But to bring it back to the 80s, uh, the story was eventually set in the uh, Central American jungle, reflecting the, the fact that U.S. Special Forces operations were being carried uh, out there around that time. But it also made sense for a film about an alien hunter taking on a squad of American soldiers. The screenwriter's intent, according to them, was to, quote, strip away elements of the modern organized world. Here's a guy with the most technological weaponry, and he's reduced to making bows and arrows, unquote. Yeah. The, Thomas the Thomas brothers had to put in some work to get the film made since they were first-time screenwriters at the time. So they got the script noticed by putting it under the door of 20th Century Fox producer Michael Levy. Levy then brought the script to the attention of Joel Silver, who greenlit the idea and decided that Predator would make a good big budget film. Man. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of things to say about that. Uh, first... <laughs> That, among other things, is why I wouldn't make it in Hollywood. <laughs> I would likely not have the balls to do something like that. I mean, I might stop someone if I saw them, uh, but I would more than likely go through the proper channels like an agent and just get buried uh, under the pile. But I certainly respect their game. The second is that <laughs> imagine being able to say that as your credit. What, what was the first thing you wrote? Oh, Predator. <laughs> yeah. And I will also add that um, he, that, have the, that signing your name with the unfortunate name of John Thomas is un, un, unintentionally funny, but I'll move on. <laughs> anyway, um, I know what you mean, uh, you know, as far as their game, but to their credit, it, that move did work for them. Um, anyway, once Arnold Schwarzenegger, director John McTiernan got involved, the story was refined in some ways. 
As we previously noted, the script wasn't written with uh, Arnold in mind. But here's one thing that surprised me a bit. The script originally featured a Native American soldier as the lead. This character eventually evolved into Billy, who was played by Sonny Landham. That obviously wasn't going to work if they wanted to use Predator as a vehicle for Arnold, so of course they changed it to Dutch. Still, uh, that original concept did come back, though not until decades later. They eventually would cast a Native American, uh, Amber Midthunder, as the lead of a Predator film in the 2022 prequel Prey. Um, interestingly enough, Prey does connect to Predator 2 as well, but we'll get into that in, uh, next episode when we talk about that film. Um, anyway, the studio's insurance company would not agree to insure the production unless a bodyguard was hired for Sonny Landham for the sole purposes of protecting people from Sonny. <laughs> the bodyguard followed Sonny everywhere to ensure he didn't get into a fight since he was well known to be violent and short-tempered. Oh, wow. <laughs> it, I mean, damn. Imagine being so wound up with self-destructive anger and bitterness that you can't even work on a project without something like this being a necessity. Landon must have must have had like 13 ulcers. <laughs> it, it's not a wonder what, that I haven't really seen him in a lot of roles, really. He probably caused a, lot, a bunch of ulcers in the people in Hollywood, too. But... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, having a reputation of being difficult to work with does not land you a lot of gigs. But as it stands, the original plot had Dutch Schaefer uh, pitted against the Predator alone. Uh, Schwarzenegger thought this was a bad idea. The, uh, uh, the score was rewritten to include a team of crack commandos, and that evolved into the idea of Dutch's squad acting as a rescue group. Although the, uh, they were never mentioned in the final film, the full names of the main characters in the original script were Major Alan Dutch Schaefer, Staff Sergeant George Dillon, uh, Sergeant Mac Elliott, Sergeant Blaine Cooper, Sergeant Brilly Soul, uh, I don't know how you pronounce that, Corporal Pancho Ramirez, and Corporal uh, Rick Hawkins. The script screenwriters also did a lot of research into uh, U.S. Special Forces operations in South America to make sure how they would really sneak into the jungle. That added a level of realism to the film that made it feel authentic. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. When the idea of Dutch being on his own came up, um, I understand that Arnold Schwarzenegger actually suggested that he wanted to do a film like 1960s Magnificent Seven, uh, where a team of guys worked together. That would make sense, especially given the opposition they were up against. An earlier plan for the movie was to have several Predators at adversaries, not just one. This was eventually scrapped, probably because the filmmakers felt that it would overcomplicate the story. And that probably was the right decision, as this film was better able to build up the threat with a single monster. Still, the story idea would eventually come back in later films like Alien vs. Predator from 2004, and uh, yet again in Predators from 2010. There were also rewrites that were done, but I'm not sure what specifically was changed. Uh, commitments by Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, delayed the start of filming by several months. The delay gave the filmmakers enough time to secure a minor rewrite from screenwriter David Peoples, who was best known for such films as the original Blade Runner. Uh, we talked about him in that episode. Still, uh, the Thomas brothers are the only writers credited on the film, and Peoples wasn't credited credit officially at all, so I doubt it was anything too extensive. But uh, what did you think of the Predator that we saw, Mike? I really liked the Predator we ended up with, so whatever road that had to be taken to get us there, I'm all right with. Uh, but I do have a question about how they chose to do the Aucha's vision. 
Um, I think the Yaucha can actually see better than we see on the film. Jungle Hunter could clearly see the tripwires on the ground as he avoided them completely. And, and you definitely could not make those out with thermal vision or any of the others we saw in Predator 2, for that matter. Uh, there seems to be some level of material vision, too, as Jungle Hunter is able to determine which people are armed and the difference between the materials. Uh, City Hunter and Predator 2 clearly knew that the boys toy gun was not real and at least in my opinion that it was plastic and not metal um how about you steve do you, do you think the yucha are, are are able to see more than we are actually shown in the movie it's certainly possible i mean there are times when the predator does seem to detect things beyond just the infrared uh like with the trip wires and it's also possible that the yucha's other senses could be heightened as well for all we know i mean i'm not saying they're wolverine but they could have a keen, keen sense of smell for instance or you know any of a number of other senses um, one thing that I love about this movie, though, is how it, well it misdirects you about what this film actually is. I imagine Predator took some people by surprise when it debuted in the 80s, because this movie leads you to believe that it's a movie about a rescue op squad, at least until the Predator shows up and starts murdering people and skinning its victims. After that, it becomes more of a horror film where the Predator kills Dutch's squad one by one. And then the movie twists the audience again once Dutch, Dutch figures out the Predator's weaknesses and takes on the Predator in that final fight. This movie dovetails so well between war, fil war film to horror movie to action flick, and it feels absolutely seamless with its twists and transitions. That's not an easy trick to pull off, and this movie does it twice, and that's truly impressive. That, that really is impressive. And and part of the reason the film attracted my father, uh, it basically had all of his favorite things in it. There was a little sci-fi, some action, even some horror uh, that just checked all the right boxes for him. And apparently for me too, as I'm still a fan to this day. And as I recall, the movie checked a few boxes for your father as well. I think that's really cool. It makes me wonder if maybe my dad and your dad couldn't have ended up being good friends like we are. But I believe you had a comparison you wanted to make, right? You know, I could definitely see that given their taste in films. But yeah, let's move on with that. Um, to answer your question, one one lesson that the Predator apparently learned from Aliens is that it made every member of Dutch's squad into a worthwhile character. The Colonial Marines were all really good characters, even guys like Hudson, who might have been harder to like under less competent hands. Even Burke, who is a scumbag, was a well-written and acted character, and we are supposed to actively hate him. And it's very much the same with Dutch's group. Um, every member of the squad has a clearly defined personality in the time that we spend with them. Uh, and it's easy to like these guys, generally. Uh, so when they all get picked off by the Predator, we actually feel something for their deaths. The closest we have to a Burke in this film is Dylan, but even he's not that bad of a person, really. And the, the fact that they're all certified badasses, to quote Private Hudson, <laughs> makes them all that much cooler. So let me ask you this, Mike. What did you think of Dutch's squad? And who would you rather have with you in a firefight? This group or the Colonial Marines? Hmm. I have to go with Dutch's team, and I'll tell you why. One, the Colonial Marines are cocksure and, and not used to losing. While they are badasses, uh, they no longer possess fear, and that is dangerous and ultimately a liability. Overconfidence and a complete lack of interest in learning anything about their enemy from Ripley because of it got most of the Colonial Marines killed. I think a soldier needs fear and, and that losing that respect for the seriousness of what they're doing dulls their capabilities and blinds them to the truth. However, I give exception to all of that about Corporal Dwayne Hicks. That guy has what I'm looking for. 
Number two is that comparing the performance of the Colonial Marines and Dutch's team, I honestly think that Dutch's team is tight. They're sharp. They, they're on the ball, and they, and they have done this so many times, but they didn't lose their edge to overconfidence. But what about you, Steve? Who's got your back? Yeah, I have to go with Dutch's squad as well. I mean, the Colonial Marines talked a good game, but until Hicks took charge, they weren't that effective, even with better equipment and advanced weapons. Because I agree. I mean, Hicks had what it take to lead them. He just didn't have much to work with after Gorman blew it so badly. Though, to be fair, Sergeant Opone was a, a pretty solid NCO until he was killed. But overall, Dutch was a better leader than Gorman by a mile. And he also had a tightly knit crew that had some, some really strong teamwork working with him. I mean, they might talk some smack off the clock, but when they were working, they were all nonsense and no business. And I agree um, that uh, complacency and arrogance did in the Colonial Marines as well. They also didn't have a snake in the grass like Burke making it worse for them, which kind of leads into my next point. Um, I feel like I have to highlight Dylan a little bit because he's the closest thing we have to a Burke in this movie. But unlike Burke, who is a calculating sociopath who'd sell out anyone to get his hands on a xenomorph, I feel like Dylan's betrayal is somewhat more understandable. Firstly, he wasn't always like this, and I don't think he'd have earned Dutch's friendship for years if he had been. Dutch even asked him up front what happened, and all Dylan says is that he woke up. Something changed him into a more ruthless character who's willing to sacrifice people for the larger mission. And we'll talk about the, that a little bit next time. So I think there's an old told story there, and I, I'd honestly be interested in seeing it. But beyond that, we see Dylan act as like a reliable member of the group until his death. He even forms bonds with other uh, members of the squad. I mean, he, he had, we got him tight with Mac by the end. And by the end, I got the sense that uh, Dylan may have been having doubts or even regrets about his actions after ending up on the receiving end of them. But it could be I'm reading too much into it. So I'll ask you, Mike, what are your thoughts on Dylan and his characters in this film? I can answer that, but I, I feel like I need to explain something first. Um, the character of Sergeant Mac Elliott was originally white in the script, and, and he and Sergeant Blaine Cooper were originally written to be white supremacists who did not like the idea of Staff Sergeant George Dillon, a black character, joining their team. This concept was, of course, dropped when Bill Duke was cast, at, cast as Mac. Uh, but there are scenes from that idea still in the film and other scenes that can, can be seen in a, whole, in a whole new light when looked at with that information. There's one very obvious scene in the chopper with Blaine with a full jaw full of chew spits on Dylan's boot. That was racially motivated originally. There, there's one scene that totally comes off differently when you look at how they were originally written. Um, in the movie, they make it seem like the team's hostility towards D Dylan, even early on, was because they work alone and didn't like him tagging along. Nobody liked Dylan on the team anyway, as they didn't like the idea of someone other than Dutch being in charge. They believed in the leader they had and, it, and didn't believe in Dylan. Not to mention that Dylan was basically a pencil pusher at that point and had been for some time and it made him soft, which made him a liability. You could see it in him, too, like like when he slipped and potentially gave away the team's position because of it. But if you throw in the racial hatred angle from Mac and Blaine, I think that adds another level of redemption for Dylan's character at the end when he went to save Mac, one of the racists on the team originally at the end. Uh, sure, Dylan had a score to settle because Jungle Hunter killed his men, uh, but he was about to jump into the lion's mouth in what is likely a suicide mission to save an enemy who had already threatened to bleed him to death and leave him in the jungle. Plus, I think he, I think he was buying time for Dutch, Anna, and Poncho to escape. I think it summed up pretty well in the scene where Dutch says, that's not your style, Dylan. And Dylan says, I guess I picked up some bad habits from you. Now get your people the hell out of here. 
What's more is even with this with a score to settle, the first thing Dylan did was meet up with Mac and make a plan to kill Jungle Hunter. I think Dylan was in pursuit of redemption for having betrayed his friend Dutch. He had justified it to himself mathematically. But when Dutch confronted him with the truth, Dylan could see in his friend's eyes what he had done. Despite his bravado, I think Dylan started to regret what he had done, and that led to his desire to redeem himself. How about that arc? Is that how you saw that too? More or less, yeah. I definitely got the sense that Dylan realized he had lost his center and he regretted turning on Dutch, especially after realizing that he was used in a similar way. Dylan's death because it becomes a redemptive sacrifice and it works. Now, I don't have any regrets that the racism angle was dumped, especially after Mac was uh, cast by Bill Duke. And honestly, I can't see Mac as anyone other than the actor we saw in the film. He was just that good. But beyond that, I think the racism subplot would have aged the film because there's no way it would be tolerated now. And a modern audience would have thought much worse of those characters. I could even see some modern viewers rooting for the Predator to kill the racists, which is probably not what the filmmakers wanted. Um, the Predator film uh, we got is a timeless movie, and it works as well today as it did back then, and I would not want to mess with that. Uh, anyway, uh, one other character that deserves special mention is Billy the Scout. Now, Billy seems aware of the Predator on some kind of deep level that's difficult to understand. He never really explains it, and we only know that he seems strangely bothered by the Predator's presence in a way that the others aren't at first. It also seems to be a danger sense of some kind. But the novelization suggests that Billy is actively psychic, able to access the memories of his ancestors and the ancient Mayans who used to live in the jungle, and this allows him to sense the Predator's presence. I, I'm just not really a fan of that interpretation, though there does seem to be a mystical angle to Billy's ability to sense the Predator. Uh, Mike, do you have any ideas as to why Billy seems to be so good at uh, finding the Predator? Um, there is definitely something informing Billy, but I think it was, at least in part, just his intuition and, and, and partly deductive reasoning with his knowledge of tracking. Uh, but I think the first time Billy really became aware of Jungle Hunter was after Hawkins made that joke that finally made Billy laugh. You'll notice that Jungle Hunter not only recorded Billy's laugh, but tried to mimic it. And I think Billy heard Jungle Hunter mimic his laugh, and that was what unnerved Billy and caused him to stop and look up at the trees. I also think that Billy was using simple deduction to determine that Jungle Hunter was not human. First, Billy was obviously bothered by Hopper and his men getting skinned alive and then hung high up in the trees. Then they shot a million bullets in the direction of that jungle hunter uh, that the jungle hunter went and it did not kill him. Jungle hunter went into their camp and took Blaine's body without tripping a single wire. Plus, Dutch deduced that jungle hunter was using the trees to move around. No human could have done this stuff is what I is what I think Billy surmised. His knowledge of the jungle hunter's presence seemed to gradually drive Billy insane, though. I think that the team picked up on that, too, which is why Poncho asked Billy what was wrong with him. Ultimately, this insanity likely played a part in his decision to fight the jungle hunter armed with only his machete and why Dutch just let him do it. But Billy wasn't the only one that went in, uh, went a little crazy because of the Jungle Hunter. Max seems to have lost it a bit, too. He, too, was truly disturbed by seeing Hopper and his men skinned alive. He said that a soldier deserved better. While the team was on their way to the extraction point, Hawkins was gutted and killed, and Blaine had a huge hole in his chest from the plasma weapon that the Jungle Hunter had. Well, Mac was there when his best friend Blaine was murdered, and it shook him. You could tell it took him a minute to act, but he saw Jungle Hunter's eyes, and he knew that it was not human. 
That sent Mac into a manic state, and he unloaded his weapon and Blaine's minigun, completely using up all of the ammo, into the jungle, trying to kill the jungle hunter. Mac was very quiet after that and talked in whispers for some time, struggling to explain what he had saw and what happened. After that, Mac was on a one mission and one mission only. He was going to kill the jungle hunter who took his best friend. He even swore to carve Blaine's name into the jungle hunter's flesh. That's some burly shit. He was wound up so tight that he mistook a wild boar as jungle hunter. Mad with both fear and rage, Mac went after the jungle hunter on his own and even discarded his best best with both weapons and ammo on it in favor of the belt gun he was holding. He seems to have gained some composure back by the time that Dylan reaches him, but that didn't stop him from getting shot in the head by the jungle hunter. Uh, what do you think about all that? I, I think I answered your question and then some. Uh, I, I guess I kind of got enthusiastic there. <laughs> that just means we're talking about a great film. <laughs> um, anyway, I don't mind. I, I think it's definitely true that Mac was losing his cool the longer they were being stalked out in the jungle. I mean, he comes across as ice cold when we first meet him, but when it's clear that he's dealing with something that's way out of his expertise, his nerves start turning on him, and then the depth of Blaine really hits him hard, breaking what's left of his composure. I thought the slow burn of Max's meltdown was paced really well and made sense for him. Likewise, with the same with Billy. One other thing that I enjoyed about this film is that it operates by a clear set of rules that it establishes firmly and it doesn't deviate from. The Predator operates by sensing heat. It has an arsenal of weapons that is set up by the film, and he has some defined weaknesses that Dutch is able to exploit. I feel like the movie turns from horror film back to action film during that last fight with Dutch, where Dutch realizes those weaknesses and figures out ways to use them against the Predator. The Predator is clever and good with the tools he has, and he's very tough, but he's not invincible. I will point out one nitpick, and by the way, this is not my nitpick. This was something that was found out by Mythbusters. So according to the Mythbusters, covering yourself in mud does not actually conceal body heat for very long, and the heat would go back up pretty quickly after applying the mud. But honestly, it's not a nitpick that bothered me all that much. It's one of those things that's easy to forgive because everything else is so good. But how about you, Mike? Honestly, I get so wrapped up in the moment uh, for that last half an hour or so that it never even occurred to me before. Um, but if, if we're going to get literal uh, with, with the whole Mythbusters thing, uh, Dutch would have had to walk around looking like Golem from Jewish Myth to conceal the amount of body heat that he would have. Fact one. It was extremely hot in Guatemala. Fact two, he was not just working his body. He was overworking his body, running through the jungle and over obstacles and fighting jungle hunter. Let's not forget that he hasn't eaten and that the water in the jungle was likely not drinkable. When you combine all of that with the extreme heat of the jungle, he was likely on the verge of a heat stroke. A thin layer of mud is not going to cover all of that up. As a final thought, this was something that I, I wish I didn't know. Uh, the thought had never crossed my mind to analyze it until I, I knew that Miss, that Mythbusters thing. Uh, it it kind of ruins it a little, if I'm honest. I, I try not to think about it when I watch it. I, I love Mythbusters, but I also tend to keep put it out of my mind when, it, when I watch this film as well. When I say this, keep in mind that I do care about scientific accuracy in a general sense. As a writer, you do need to do a reasonable amount of accuracy to keep people in the movie because glaring obvious inaccuracies destroy the illusion of life that you're building, and it takes you out of the film. But sometimes there are real-world nitpicks that really are not that important, and they just get in the way of a movie being fun. Uh, these kinds of little things, you just have to let go. You won't be able to enjoy anything. And believe me, I spot plot holes all the time, and I have no problems calling them out when I see them, uh, when it's appropriate. But if you go too far with nitpicks, 
you can't enjoy the, the the sense of wonder and appreciate something that's really cool. I think that's the case with this scene. But speaking of cool things, I think you had some points to add, Mike. Which sounds like we're on the same page there then. Uh, but but yes, I, I would like to point out just a couple of the things that jumped out at me. Um, after Dutch's guttural primal challenge to the jungle hunter, he makes his way to his first trap. Jungle hunter, completely unaware of Dutch's presence, walks out onto the log and Dutch shoots that long ass arrow into the pile of stuff on the log and it blows up like a bomb in front of jungle hunter, hurting him and damaging his equipment. But the predator has no idea where the explosion came from, so he panics and starts shooting in every direction. This is exactly what Billy had said that Hopper and his men did uh, before uh, when the jungle hunter killed and skinned them. Dutch totally turned the tables on the jungle hunter. I'd have thrown in a, how do my shoes feel, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he really did. The other thing Dutch is doing here is that he's confusing the predator's senses. Because the predator sees through heat, setting up an explosion in a huge bonfire can throw his senses for a loop. There's so much heat in the area that the predator just isn't able to focus on a smaller heat source like Dutch. I think Dutch knew that and he planned that out on purpose using the heat to divert the predator off his trail. He plays it very smart towards the end, and it is a great finale. You know, I, I had not considered the infrared thing uh, coming into play. Uh, while I can understand how Dutch deduced that, given the mud hiding him, he was really kind of hedging his bets on a hunch by doing that. He, he didn't know that was the only way that the, that the Predator could see. Uh, but it did pay off big time, though. Uh, last but not least is something I didn't notice until watching Predator for this episode. I have always been a little confused about the plasma caster weapon. Uh, it blew a giant hole in Blaine's chest, put a tennis ball size hole in Mac's head, blew off Dylan's arm. If it can do all of that, why didn't it blow off Dutch's arm? Well, I found out this time. If you look real close, you can see that the shot actually hits Dutch's M16 uh, that has a grenade launcher on it, not Dutch's shoulder. Uh, his arm is hurt in the process, but the shot was intended for the weapon to take it out so he couldn't use it anymore. Had that shot been meant for Dutch's arm, he would have totally lost his arm like Dylan did. So how about that? Am I the last one to figure that out or what? I might be, actually, because I never thought too much about it. Um, but yeah, we've definitely seen the plasma weapon just brutalize anybody that it hits. So that's a great, uh, great catch. I think your explanation is good enough for a no prize, so I'm willing to go with it. Um, from here, uh, we'll go uh, move on to Concrete Jungle, which has connections to the first movie and was a loose base for, basis for Predator 2, which we'll discuss next time. But before we do, let's talk about how the name evolved. Most of the film was shot under the original title, Hunter, as can be seen on clapperboards in the outtakes on the special edition DVD. It was only later when the creature design was changed that the movie became Predator. Predator also became the default name for the creature species used by fans, despite never being mentioned on screen until Predator 2 in 1990. But there's another name for the Predator species, and I know Mike can't wait to get into that. Mm -hmm. But to set that all up, um, we'll need to talk about the Predators themselves, who they are, and what their world and society is like. Uh, Mike, would you like to start us off with that? I sure would. Um, let's talk about the Predators, or Hunters, as most humans call them. Uh, but they, or at least a race of them, are known by another name, and that is, of course, Gaucha. 
Gaucha is a name they have been referred to as and that they have called themselves. But again, I think this might refer to just a specific race of them, just like there are different races of humans on this planet. Uh, for, for reference, the first time the term Yauta appeared was in the novelization of the AVB comic uh, called Aliens vs. Predator Prey. Uh, what, what is cool about the AVP comic series is what it reveals about the two species. But in regards to the Yauta, it delves into their complex culture, language, and hierarchy. While the comics go into more detail, I'm going to try to hit you with the bullet points of their history. Uh, there was a time many millennia ago before the Yauta came to be that their precursors, uh, the Hishkuten, or simply the Hish, lived on Yaucha Prime, their home planet. The Hish were diff weren't too different from the Yaucha, save for a few things. Uh, they were shorter, uh, far more primitive, and intellectually undeveloped. Um, the Hish have also also have a kill gland that triggered them and puts them in a homicidal berserker rage. However, a planet-wide invasion of Yaucha Prime by an insect race called the Amengi uh, changed everything. The Amengi did not just win, the Hish were decimated, and those left alive were harshly and brutally enslaved for centuries. The Hish were also experimented on by the Amengi and eaten by them. One of their more popular uses was being used in the hunts and fighting competitions for entertainment. But eventually the Hish had had enough, and particularly large and intelligent Hish led an uprising that conquered the Amengi despite their advanced technology because they had grown soft over the centuries. That's a theme we're starting to see uh, going across this franchise. Those Amengi left were uh, alive were in turn enslaved by the Hish, and this is where things really changed for their species and culture. The Hish integrated certain aspects of Amengi culture and their advanced technology into their own culture and identity, the Yaucha. Uh, but not everyone took this path, and not everyone calls themselves Yaucha. In fact, there is a remnant of the Hishkutan that call themselves the Widow Clan that do not even understand the word when the few humans that have called them that have used it. But this in part suggests that perhaps due to the experimentation by the Amengi, that those that became the Ayucha might be a different race uh, of the species. And there are some, some there, but there are still some Hishkutan out there. There, there also appears to be a third race of predators uh, that I think might be an offspring of the Yaucha or perhaps even a result of another Amengi ex experimentation. Uh, I suggest this because they have the kill gland that the Hitchkuten have uh, and that makes them go into a berserker state. Uh, they call them super predators on Earth, uh, but the Yaucha call them berserker Yaucha. Uh, they are typically larger, stronger, and more aggressive than their smaller cousins. Uh, they have a more reptilian appearance than the Ayucha with scaly skin, uh, longer faces, and shorter snouts. Also, their skin color is different. Uh, their hair is a bit more swept back, and, and even their voice is a bit different than the Ayucha we are familiar with. Yeah, I remember the super predators from the third film, Predators, which unfortunately we won't be talking about this episode, though I do recommend that you see it. Anyway, we see in that film that the super predators considered the regular Yaucha to be prey, probably because they were physically smaller and weaker. But it does go to show that the predators have their own internal factions like any other group, and that there are internal differences even among the Yaucha. The culture does seem to be really well thought out, including a fairly complex history. But then the old Dark Horse books always were really good at fleshing out what we didn't see in the films. But there's always been an aspect of the predators that interests me, and it was inspired by my last viewing of Predator 2. The idea was that the Yaucha choose to hunt rather than relying on their advanced technology to solve all of their needs. 
they don't really need the hundred other species to survive, but they do it anyway. And I'm curious as to why that is. Mike, I think you have some lore in mind that addresses that question. I do um, uh, a lot, in fact. Uh, the Utah that were born of the uprising is something akin to amalgamating both advanced science with primeval savagery and a foundational ritual called the hunt. Uh, I, I remember Shafe uh, referencing that uh, they, they 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 held on to this because it it held on to that animal side, that primal side of them. Uh, but the hunt was the pra ritualistic practice of hunting and killing dangerous life forms. Uh, the more lethal and challenging, the worthy the worthier the prey they were. The Ayucha will travel vast distances to hunt the prey and even capture prey to bring back to a hunting ground of their choosing. Um, here is the thing, though. Despite their incredibly advanced technology like their armor, light-bending camouflage, and plasma weapons, which, will, which actually have to be earned through initiation rituals, it is considered more honorable to use weapons like blades, uh, spears, and even nets. This explains why they chose to fight the way they did and why they might not use technology when they could have. However, to be defeated in a hunt is incredibly shameful, so much so that a Yayucha typically commits an honorable suicide rather than living in shame by enacting the self-destruct device on their wrist gauntlet. When this happens, the Yayucha ship automatically goes back to Yayucha Prime to give the record of the hunt recorded by their helmets to the family of the hunter. Not committing suicide is considered cowardly, and though a Yayucha labeled a coward might live a few days, they would be tracked down and assisted with their suicide by enforcers. So this goes back to their society and their traditions as well as their codes of honor. I can see how this makes some sense. I wouldn't be surprised if the writers drew on Japanese culture, which likewise prizes honor in combat. They also saw embracing death before dishonor as a virtue, even as recently as the Second World War. And seppuku, or ritual suicide, was also a practice centuries before that. And they also had seconds that assisted with the suicide as well, like the predators. Um, and yet they are a very advanced culture now that values technology and scientific innovation. So it's not inconceivable that the Yaucha see themselves in a similar light. But I think you had more to add on the Predator Code of Honor. I do, but first I want to comment on what you said there. Uh, I think that is a nice catch. Um, I had not considered Bushido as an influence in their warrior culture, but whether it's the idea of a code for warriors or the content of the code itself, there are definite similarities, including those you mentioned. Uh, the lives of the samurai warriors were ruled by seven principles called Bushido. These seven rules were righteousness, loyalty, honor, respect, honesty, courage, and consistency. At least courage, respect, honor, and loyalty are present in the Yaucha Code of Honor. Uh, but as the hunt and the Yaucha Code are at the core of Yaucha culture and beliefs, I should elaborate on some specifics about them. Uh, there are rules and regulations that everyone is expected to follow, that they were created by the elders, and the elders are the only ones who can send out enforcers to deal with the violators. The Yaucha can live thousands of years, so these laws, a.k.a. the Code of Honor, have been in place for a very long time. Anyone who breaks these rules is considered a bad blood and an insult to all that is Yaucha culture. Bad bloods are tracked down and killed by enforcers, and any other Yaucha that crosses their path is duty-bound to kill them as well or become bad bloods themselves. Now, let's get into the Code of Honor, the or Yaucha law, however you want to see it. 
uh, what can be hunted and when is spe is very specific to the Ayucha. Uh, for instance, one must be blooded before they can hunt intelligent species. That means that they must go through uh, what you saw in the first Aliens versus Predator movie. Uh, they must battle a xenomorph or some equally dangerous creature and defeat them. In the case of victory over the xenomorph, the Ayucha would take the xenomorph blood and mark their flesh or their helmet with their individual clan sim symbol or other marking. This mark proves that you are blooded and is the real way to get this rank. There are apparently some others, however, that believe that completing basic training, another requirement for both the blooded, uh, uh, blooded ritual and hunting, is enough to earn the, this rank without the mark. Yayucha seemed to go through levels of training that is something akin to going uh, straight into boot camp at a young age, uh, but... But the boot camp is simultaneously a school, teaching all aspects of Yaucha culture and military prowess. So, as I said, some believe completing basic training grants Yaucha blooded status, and as they move up in rank, more and more training is required. Uh, once all that is dealt with, then a Yaucha must choose a worthy prey, and it must be both considered game and lawful to kill. The predator must be able to defend itself and possess the ability to kill the hunter. That builds into another law. The odds must be even so that the prey must have a fighting chance for victory. What's more is that if the prey demands close quarters combat, the Gaiucha is obliged to give them that, as we saw in the first Predator movie. That law, I think, is the basis for a third law as well, in my opinion. The law and code of honor say that those who have not done harm are not to be harmed. It is my opinion that this is the law that stops the Gaiucha from hurting or killing someone without a weapon. That's why the Gaiucha didn't kill or hurt Anna Gonzalez. Uh, she, was she was an unarmed prisoner. But back to the criteria. Uh, they must also be, be of the right age. Killing children or el elderly or even the diseased is extremely dishonorable to the hunter. That, that certainly makes sense as a warrior's code. Uh, but there is more thought put into it. This The prey they choose must not doom another life or death. Like, for instance, they couldn't kill uh, a mother and that, that her, and her death uh, would abandon her children and thus mean the death of her children, something along those lines. Um, they are certainly considering the ramifications of their actions. Uh, they are both ruthless and rigidly honorable. Uh, what do you think about all that, Steve? I think it's a really fascinating code, and we do really see this play out in the films, even if it's not specifically laid out for us. The Predators want to triumph in a worthy and challenging hunt against opponents who are capable of fighting back. So the Aucha are not going to kill children or anyone else they consider to be defenseless, because there's no honor in that. The stronger the opponent, the more worthy prey they consider it to be, and thus the more honorable the kill. The hunt of a Yaucha is not at the act of, about the act of killing itself, but about earning honor for the hunter and for his clan. It's a very tribal system. So from here, I'd like to talk about the history of Yaucha contact with the planet Earth. They've been secretly active on Earth for a very long time. In fact, Predator 2 suggests that the Yaucha wiped out the dinosaurs by hunting them all to extinction. Now, it should be noticed that this, that this was established before the currently accepted theory that the dinosaurs were probably wiped out in, after an asteroid strike. But I imagine that the predator hunting probably could have thinned their numbers significantly, even accounting for that. Now, I don't know how much I accept Aliens versus Predator as canon, but I think that movie did establish some ideas that are worth considering. According to the archaeologist Sebastian in that film, quote, thousands of years ago, these hunters found a backwater planet. They taught humans how to build and they were worshipped as gods, unquote. That opens up some questions about the Predators uh, that are really fascinating. 
You know, it, it really does. Uh, but as for what is canon, I I personally see the canon as the movies are the Bible for the series, and the comics kind of fill in the gaps. So all of it is is canon to me. But but movies will always trump the comics. Um, how do you see your Predator canon, Steve? For me, how I see canon will usually depend on the series and their foundational rules. But I think I take my approach to Star Wars canon to Predator. The films are generally going to be the most official thing, uh, unless they're just so bad that I don't count them in my head canon. But I typically accept stories that I consider to be quality as long as they don't contradict the films too much. But like Star Wars, you'll get later films that come along and retroactively invalidate some of the comics. So you kind of have to pick your and choose your own canon carefully. With Alien versus Predator, I'm often not sure of the canonicity of it because there are elements that don't quite line up with the Alien films. That movie came out before Prometheus, and that movie had a very different approach to the Waylands. Um, I'm inclined to accept Prometheus over AVP if I had to choose. And then there's the point that Requiem is a really bad movie, aside from The Wolf Predator, and it is best left forgotten. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, we're not going to be diving into that one. It sounds like we're fairly close on, on how we see that. So, so that's awesome. Uh, but I, I do have a question. Um, what, what, what exactly is the Yaucha history with Earth? You know, that's a good question. Um, the Yaucha have a long and involved history with humans on Earth, dating back to ancient times. Evidence suggests that the Yaucha um, influenced the development of early, civil, early human civilization, including the ancient Egyptians, the Khmer Empire, the Aztecs, and a largely undocumented culture, inhabiting what is now um, modern-day Bouvea in Antarctica. I, I do want to add that Antarctica was the site of a, Amazon, a predator hunting ground in Alien vs. Predator. This idea is based on the ancient alien theory that Atlantis was actually located in Antarctica. But again, it, it's, we're, it's plausible when you're talking about the Iosia. Um Upon their arrival in ancient times, the predators taught these early humans how to construct pyramids, which explains why so many ancient civilizations share distinctly similar cultures and architecture. Though I will say that um, when I asked this of a history professor, uh, his response is, yeah, the reason why they're usually pyramids and things like this is because they're just the easiest thing to make uh, with the technology that they have. Um, but yes, anyway, sir. yeah, well, yes, yes, that's it. anyway, the, these pyramids and temples were then used across by the Yucha. You decide. Um, typically for but, uh, typically for uh, initiation hunts that, involving the xenomorphs, um, which would be bred through the use of sacrificial human hosts that the civilization would provide. These rite of passage hunts were conducted every hundred years on Earth. Each young blood taking part would be expected to return with the head of a xenomorph killed in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Should they fail and the hunting <laughs> grounds be overrun with xenomorphs, the Yaucha were expected to activate their self-destruct devices dying honorably and eliminating all traces of the xenomorph infestation. We saw this ritual play out in the Alien vs. Predator film. Not all hunts on Earth were conducted in such a matter. Um, Yaucha also visited the planet to hunt humans as well. In fact, the species has been linked to the destruction of the ancient Mayans in Central America. Yaucha individuals have also hunted humans during the Renaissance in North America prior to its colonization by the European nations in prey. Um, in New Way City in 1930, on Iwo Jima during World War II, in Cambodia during the Vietnam War, in Beirut, in Guatemala during the late 80s in the first film, in uh, L.A. in 1997 in Predator 2, and Neonopolis in 2030, as well as numerous other occasions. A predator also trans traveled to Earth in 2004 to clean up a xenomorph outbreak in Gunnison, Colorado, resulting from a failed hunt in Antarctica earlier in this year, if you accept uh, Requiem. 
Of course, uh, that last one took place in, in, in Requiem, and I don't blame anyone for wanting to forget that movie happened. <laughs> um, but throughout history, uh, predators have also abducted humans for, from Earth for stage hunts at least one game-preserved planet that they control in an undefined uh, region of space. The particular means of hunting prey uh, seem to be utilized primarily by the super predators. But I think it's very clear that Earth has become a favorite hunting ground by the Yaucha, and one they return to again and again, either for ritual hunting or for sport. Wow. Thanks for that breakdown, Steve. Uh, I think that really hits all the major points. A at least it did for me. Uh, and, and actually, speaking of returning again and again, it would seem that there are even territories claimed on Earth by Yaucha clans. Uh, the jungle hunter Yaucha in the film was but one of a, a jungle hunter clan that often traveled to the area as individuals. The clan of Yaucha, because they came one at a time, was actually often mistaken as a single killer by the locals over the decades, earning the clan the colloquial name El Diablo que hace trofeos de los hombres, the demon who makes trophies of men. Uh, after Jungle Hunter was defeated by Dutch, his ship, of course, automatically went back to Yaucha Prime with a record from Jungle Hunter's helmet of everything he saw down there stored on the ship's computers. Those records were, of course, studied by the Yaucha, who had a newfound respect for humans and their capabilities. Most notably among those uh, impressed with the humans of Earth was the City Hunter, who we see in Predator 2. Knowledge of this event also found its way to other countries on Earth, apparently. When the IDF sniper Isabel was captured by the super predator in 2010 and taken to the game preserve planet you mentioned earlier she recognized both the the, the Yucha and their tech from classified reports uh from the hunt in 1987 in guatemala and actually on that note i should say that the movie predator does not say where they are at only that it is in south america the comics say it took place in colombia originally but at some point in both the films and in the comics it was decided to be guatemala i I don't actually know why. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Steve? I really don't know. I personally thought that it might have been somewhere like Columbia, especially if you accept Concrete Jungle, which places the story there. It, it could just be a mistake on the part of the film. I don't know. Inaccuracies aren't uh, uncommon when it comes to working out the lore in this series. Now, you might think that we'd move on to Predator 2 from here, and that's not an unreasonable guess. Uh, but in fact, we will be doing it next time. Uh, for now, there actually is a Predator sequel we want to discuss before we get there and that is the comic series Predator Concrete Jungle from 1989. One of the reasons it's worth bringing up is because it was an influence on Predator 2, and we'll discuss those connections uh, next time. But it's also a solid story in its own right. Mike, did you have any initial thoughts on this series before we get into it? Out of all the Predator comics I have read, I, I, I have liked six, and, and those are Concrete Jungle, Cold War and Dark River, uh, which all tell the story of John Schaefer. Uh, Big Game and Blood on Two Witch Mesa that tells the story of Native American U.S. Army Corporal Enoch Nakai and his grandfather facing off against the Yaucha. Last but not least, I liked Bad Blood as it told the story of a renegade Yaucha, a bad blood being tracked down by an enforcer. Uh, but out of all of those great stories, Concrete Jungle remains my favorite. I don't know if it's because it's the first Predator comic that I read Read, uh, outside of AVP, uh, but I have read it about five times now, and I'm curious what your thoughts were on it. Uh, this was your first time reading it. What was your take? I enjoyed Concrete Jungle quite a bit by the end of it. it. It takes a bit of time to get really set up because um, just because of the setup of the characters, but once it does, the uh, comic gets into fun action film territory. I actually liked Schaefer quite a lot as a character. He's just a badass who is worthy of taking some head predator heads 
and he gets some awesome moments in it. Um, I, I probably should read some of those other books because Schaefer is just a cool main hero. Now, uh, right off the bat, it's hard to ignore certain similarities in the setup with Concrete Jungle and Predator 2. The movie's set in a city infested by gang warfare, with the Predator hunting the Kangs as well as the cops. The main characters are cops, with the main hero is a tuck maverick cop who doesn't know when to quit. You have the government up to top secret and sketchy things involving the Predator, and they eventually turn out to have connections to Dutch in the first film. And it turns out that there's uh, more than one Predator involved with the story. So while uh, the two stories do play out differently, as we'll discuss uh, next episode, there's no question that Concrete Jungle is one of the building blocks of Predator 2. I have to agree with that, but I might go a little farther. I, I might say that it was more than a building block. I, I would go as far as to say it was the foundation that Predator 2 was built on. You mentioned several things, but I would like to add a few. Things like the record-breaking heat wave and its effect on the citizens of both New York uh, in, in Concrete Jungle and Los Angeles and Predator 2. You mentioned gang warfare, but I find it interesting that in both cases, the Colombian gangs were involved. Uh, there is a subway attack in both stories where a a bunch of businessmen and women pull out guns uh, out of their purses and briefcase and are slaughtered because they are armed by a city hunter. There is the involvement of the OWLF, aka the Otherworldly Life Forms Program, uh, which I will talk about in just a second in both Concrete Jungle and 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 later uh, next episode of Predator Two. Uh, but there there is even the lost tribe of Yaucha that the city hunter belonged uh, to that came to Earth in response to what happened in 1987 in Colombia in Predator Two, uh, which is the same reason the Yaucha came back to Earth in Concrete Jungle, albeit in force and not a single ship. There's, of course, the fact that both Concrete Jungle and Predator 2 are told from the perspective of cops, like you mentioned, and Harrigan is, is a lot like Detective Schaefer in Concrete Jungle. Uh, what do you think, Steve? Uh, would you still describe it as a building block, a foundation, or, or, or something else? Oh, I'd say that Concrete Jungle is the blueprint for what Predator 2 became, no question. You covered all the similarities, so I'm not going to rehash them again, but most of the major elements are present in both films, and it's undeniable. I do think they're under, they're a bit different in the sense that Concrete Jungle involves other locations, a more concrete connection with Dutch, and it deals with an invasion of predators rather than uh, just the one hunting in, in the city. But there are way too many similarities to ignore. But let's get into the details on Concrete Jungle so we can get a clear idea of what that involves. Mike, how would you like to start us off? I'd love to, Steve. Um but I, I got to open this out with a spoiler warning. <laughs> if you have not read Predator Concrete Jungle and do not want to have it spoiled for you, you should probably stop this right here. Go read the comics and come back. <laughs> for the rest of you, however, let's dive into the comics. Um, I'm going to talk about the first couple of issues and Steve is going to talk about the last couple of issues. Uh, so here we go. Concrete Jungle is the four issue miniseries that ran from June 1989 to March 1990 from Dark Horse Comics. Um, it was written by Mark Beerheiden, who was also writing Dark Horse's Aliens Outbreak, which I would also recommend to any alien fans out there. Beerheiden would go on to write four more alien stories and two more predator stories, including Cold War and Dark River. All of that to say that this guy can write in this genre well. Joining Bear Hyden is also uh, artist Chris Warner and Sam De La Rosa. I have to say that 
Of the 20 or so comics I have read in the Predator series, this one is my favorite. Concrete Jungle is a direct sequel to the 1987 film, and it was originally intended to feature the character of Alan Dutch Schaefer, the same Dutch from the first film, except now he is serving as a police officer in an urban battle with the new Predator. However, the lead character of the comic series was ultimately changed to Detective John Schaefer, Dutch's older brother. That was a good decision. Uh, anyway, the creators on the Concrete Jungle book were a bit surprising to me looking back on it. I mean, I mainly know Mark Verhayden from some Superman issues that he did before the New 52 reboot, which I admittedly haven't read much of. I couldn't remember Chris Warner from anything uh, else he might have done either. But after looking into a bio a little bit, I mean, he was involved with the creation of Barb Wire, and he's done quite a bit of other work for Dark Horse among uh, a bunch of different franchises. As an aside, I will add that Sam DeLaRosa and Ron Randall did some inking for the series as well. I know you mentioned them. Um, I actually once met uh, Sam De La Rosa at a con, and I even have some signed posters from him. He's a, he's an experienced editor who's done a lot. I think he's done a lot of different work, um, he, and he was always a cool guy when I interacted with him. But uh, moving on, uh, Ron Randall is another name that I recognize. Uh, he's done a lot of comics over the years for a number of different companies, including the big two. So even if these aren't the biggest names, uh, they're all seasoned veterans who have done a lot of very solid work in the comics industry. Mike, when did you discover Concrete Jungle and what got you into reading the Predator comics? Uh, one of the things that really made me made Predator feel like it was something for me uh, was the Predator comics. I mean, sure, my dad got me into the films, but comics was a territory that was all mine as a kid. Uh, I had never even heard of them. And, and, and then one day I'm over at my friend's house and I saw this Aliens versus Predator comic. I was like, what the hell is that? And he explained it to me. I, I of course, I, of course, knew of the two species from the films and, and the idea of them fighting sounded really awesome by his description um i borrowed the comic and then later came back and borrowed concrete jungle from him uh but it was really just over the last 10 years or so that i've been really diving back into the comics again that's really cool and i can definitely see their appeal now that i've gotten a taste of those books before that um i really hadn't read that much aside from alien versus predator the daily the deadliest of the species and i think we discussed that briefly in our episode on the alien franchise so this is my first dive into the books we're discussing so let's get into how this series opens up. Sure. Uh, the series starts out with a noir-like narration by Detective Raish about his and his partner Detective Schaefer's job the last few months. Apparently, he and his partner Schaefer used to work narcotics, but Schaefer often crosses the line and is fairly violent in general, regardless of the standards of the badge. In fact, Detective Schaefer actually threw a drug lord named Echevera off a three-story building. <laughs> I mean, granted, he survived, but, but that got them transferred over to homicide, and Boy, have they been busy since then. Detective Race talks about the record-breaking heat wave that is cooking the citizens of New York. The heat is putting everyone on edge and has even led to another wave, a wave of gruesome murders across the city by both regular people that would normally not do something like that and hardened gangsters. The story opens up with a man killing his wife for watching Green Acres. <laughs> That's obviously <laughs> right? a completely irrational act that, that even didn't that didn't even make sense to the man who actually shot his wife with a double barrel shotgun. He had no idea why even he did it. Just for some reason, Green Acres was just too much for him to take. Uh, to complicate things further, uh, the gangsters and drug dealers are turning murder and violence up to 11. So there is aggression on an unusually high scale going across the city. 
makes me wonder about those guys in the jungle in the first movie who took hostages and then began killing them off. And I wonder if it was not the heat that made the captors a little unhinged like the people in New York and later in L.A. Uh, but what do you think of that, Steve? Does that put that scene in any kind of a different light for you? It could be that that's the case, but it seems so odd that I can't help but wonder if something else is involved. So there's not enough to make that kind of conclusion. So as it is, I have to let go, let the scene go and roll with what it gives us. I will say as an aside that I would not be surprised if the Predators thrive in heat, and that's why it was drawn to the city like at that time, but we'll move on. And I think the scene is about establishing the tension and the violence in the city, setting the stage for the Predators' hunt. But it's also designed to establish uh, Raish and Schaefer and the roles of detectives before the insanity really starts. It certainly does do that. Um, Shafe keeps talking about how the city just doesn't feel right, and and even the stars don't seem like they're they're like they are normally. And while he thinks it's a bit weird, Shafe's partner, Detective Raish, is starting to feel it too. Uh, it's it's New York. Um, things are crazy a lot, but lately it, it's gotten really bad. So bad, in fact, that sworn enemies like the drug lords, Lamb and the psychotic car are holding a secret meeting at an abandoned tenement to deal with it. Uh, the biggest problem that both gangs were having was that the Colombians were trying to move in and claim territory claim their territory in New York. Lamb suggests that the two of them work together to muscle out the Colombians, uh, but their meeting is cut short by the arrival of a Yaucha, city hunter, and as everyone is armed, the room lights up. The, gunfi the gunfire alerts the police, and Detective Schaefer and Raish are on the call. Despite being given orders to secure the building only and not to enter it, they go in anyway, only to find both gangs massacred, their bodies hanging like curing meat with their skin flayed. Carr was the only survivor, uh, and he got away before, the, uh, before either the detectives could catch him. Uh, Detective McComb arrives and reprimands the two officers for disobeying uh, orders not to enter the premises, warning them to stay off the case and informing him that the feds will handle it. This was, of course, mirrored in Predator 2, but instead of Captain McComb, we got uh, Deputy Chief Bill Heineman. Mike, if you don't mind, let me stop you there for a moment because this scene seems a little weird. The cops get called in after the gang members start shooting up the place, echoing the scene from Predator 2. All that's fair enough. But I'll be honest, when I read this for the first time, I thought that Carr was going to end up as a Predator trophy. They never explain how it is he's not dead. And Carr is definitely someone that a Predator would target. I mean, he is not like, you know, a non-armed civilian. So I think my question here is, how did Carr survive the attack? Did he just get lucky or did the Predator just leave him alive for some reason? I, I honestly have little to no explanation there. Um, my only guess is that he knows how to hide and is quick to do so when necessary. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, he's a trophy for sure. Uh, but back to the next attack. Um, several days later, another predator attack occurred, this time in the New York Subway Express line. Bodies strung up and blood everywhere without prior authorization from Captain McCombs. And despite knowing that Captain McCone would suspend Detective Schaefer and Raish, they both went to the subway and went in anyway to check it out. When they got there, the scene was much like uh, the bloody subway car after math scene in, from Predator 2. Captain McComb, of course, arrives, and just as he is given orders to physically remove Detective Schaefer and Raish from the scene, U.S. Army Major General Homer Phillips, uh, who we know from the 87 Predator film, interrupts to warn McComb that if Schaefer is anything like his younger brother, 
Mr. Dutch, that would not be a good idea. <laughs> Major General Phillips pulls them aside and mentions that he knew Shafe's younger brother, Dutch, and warns them not to continue their investigation into the killings that have been happening. But once Phillips mentioned Dutch, Shafe was on a trail like a hunting dog. If anything, Phillips incited what came next. <laughs> there was no backing Schaefer down now that he knew things might have uh, these things might have actually killed his brother. I think Phillips miscalculated on the dogged stubbornness of the Schaefers. <laughs> that, is, that, that is one stubborn family. Anyway, I got the feeling that there was a connection between Schaefer and Dutch just based on the name, but I felt like they made the mystery uh, work uh, leading up to the reveal. And also Schaefer is just a badass in this series, and it's hard not to believe he, that he's related to Arnold. <laughs> what did you make of Schaefer as a character, Mike? I love John Schaefer as a character, and he is a big reason I love those three stories he's in. As a person, I think he's a bully and only knows how to communicate through violence and intimidation. Even when he went to his partner Rache's house to tell him about the subway murders, he said, do you want to go or do you want to dance? Even in his jokes, there has to be some level of threat to him. I, th that said, he, he certainly seems to be the right badass for the job in the stories he is in. He, like John Wick, has a singular focus and sheer fucking will. While I wouldn't like the character in real life, he makes for a great action character in the comics. Oh, totally agreed. He's a fun character to watch. And while he'd keep you alive, he's not someone you'd invite over for dinner. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he's dealing with some real psychological issues under the surface, too. I mean, War leaves its scars, and Schaefer has probably had a share of them, even if he masked it under his tough guy persona. But let's talk about what he does next, because it's a pretty big moment. That sounds like a great idea. After that, Schaefer and Raish go back to the first crime scene, where they saw the gangmangers hung up to look for clues. Once there, Schaefer goes on ahead of his partner, and once he is by himself, Ayayucha attacks him, and Schaefer knows he is the killer. But for all of his bra bravado, the Ayucha beats him down and beats him down good. And in the process, attaches what seems to be a tracking device on his neck and kicks him out of the window. But in the struggle, Shafe hit the Ayucha in the head with a two by four and knocked off his helmet. Schaefer grabs it in his arms just before the city hunter boots him out the window. He falls five fucking stories through the clotheslines, which helped actually break his fall into the alleyway below. Uh, Race grabs his partner and tucks away the Ayucha helmet mask or mask uh, as the ambulance is putting in putting Schaefer inside the vehicle. And of course, the ambulance rushes Detective Schaefer to the hospital where he gets patched up. The doctors cannot remove the device attached to Shafe's neck, however, as it would sever his carotid artery. It was then that Shafe was starting to understand the high level of attention he is getting. He has run into something way bigger than the police even suspect. Race goes home only to find Schaefer in his hospital gown banging on his door afterwards. Schaefer basically says, we're going back to work, and Shafe just goes with it. But when they get to the station, Captain McComb is pissed and confronts Schaefer about why he, he was at a government-sealed crime scene, a.k.a. the subway murders. They argue in the captain's office as Schaefer tries to confirm what he knows about with General Phillips. The captain doesn't know anything and plans on not only firing Schaefer, but bringing him up on charges as well. And Schaefer destroys his phone and roughs the captain up a little. I'll admit that this part took me out of the story a little bit i mean slamming the car the captain into the walls and threatening him i mean bullshit did, did, did you have any thoughts on that steve that should have been a career ending move he made there and it probably would have gotten him locked up while i do think there was clearly a cover-up going on the captain probably wasn't in any position to do anything about it anyway it was over his uh, pay grade 
Uh, Schaefer is really damn lucky the captain was in a forgiving mood because he should have lost his badge at minimum. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. I mean, the closest we get really to an equal and opposite reaction uh, was the captain bitching out Raish and then threatening to take Schaefer out later when the opportunity arose to, rose to do it uh, legally. Uh, but there is no official response, not even in the sequels. Uh, but we should move on at this point. Um, after roughing up his captain, Detective Schaefer heads down to Columbia in hopes that retracing his brother's Dutch's path might yield some answers. While he is down there, he is met with a guide that leads him into the jungle to the places where Dutch and his team were there. Schaefer goes out into the jungle to confront the jungle hunter tribe, Gaucho, that was there. They get into a knockdown drag out brawl during which Schaefer believes he recognized the jungle hunter clan Gaucho from the New York City. This is, of course, impossible. Yaucha, as we have discussed, have territory, and they do not hunt in other Yaucha's hunting grounds. That is part of their code of honor. I explain this away by saying when Schaefer fought the city hunter in New York, it was dimly lit, and he never really got a good look at the city hunter. Not to mention Schaefer had never seen a Yaucha in his entire life. I don't think he could have possibly known that the Yaucha he, he fought in the jungle was the same predator he fought in New York City. Um, I personally think that the jungle hunter Yaucha was there investigating the events of 1987 and not tracking down Schaefer. Anyway, Schaefer's fight with the jungle hunter Gaucha ends up with Schaefer booting the jungle hunter off a, off a cliff and onto a branch that killed him. Well, Supposedly. He comes back later in, uh, in another story. Uh, but that isn't the end of Schaefer's troubles in Colombia. It turns out that the guide is actually a decoy agent working for General Phillips, who has some fucked up plans for Schaefer that I will let Steve get into with issues three and four. Uh, but when General Phillips find out that the jungle hunter clan Gaucha that Schaefer fought didn't kill Schaefer, that throws a big old wrench in the general's plans, which apparently go as high as the president himself. That is the first couple of issues. So that means my friend Steve here is going to take over and tell you about the last two issues. Sure, I'd love to. Uh, Schaefer's badassery opens up a whole new can of worms that it, it turns out. Killing the Predator ends up sparking open war with the Jungle Hunter clan of Yaucha, who are out for blood and want to kill Schaefer. But Schaefer got out of there while the Jungle Hunter clan took out Eshevera and his men. Thinking the job completed after killing the Yaucha, uh, Schaefer plans his return to the U.S., but uh, on the way, uh, the Jungle is captured by Echevera, the drug dealer that he previously threw off a roof in New York when Schaefer was in narcotics. Taken to Echevera's base of operations, the drug lord prepares to have Schaefer tortured, only for his fortified compound to be attacked by, by a group of jungle hunter predators seeking revenge on Schaefer for the death of uh, their fallen brother. Uh, Schaefer escapes the carnage and flees back into the jungle where he's recovered by General Phillips. Now, I have to say that this plot point is unique to the comics, and nowhere do we see anything similar happen in the films. It seems like the predators tend to hunt in shadow, never making their presence too obvious as they kill their prey. In later films, we see the heroes being honored by the Aucha for killing a predator. And we'll talk about an example of this uh, later in the next episode when we talk about Predator 2. But I can't deny that it's a cool setup for the rest of the comic. Mike, do you have a preference between the two approaches? And what did you think of the twist at the end of issue two? I, I think that with the exception of Jungle Hunter, 
who who is totally like you described. He hunts in the shadow and or camouflage. He prefers to use technology-based weapons when he fights too, rather than the more honorable blades and combi sticks. Um, he is also more obsessed with trophies. He could not even wait to get back to his ship. He he had a, he had to have all of his little skulls all polished and pretty right then. Uh, that tells me that tells me really where his joy is at. There, Jungle Hunter seeks honor uh, for killing for his many kills rather than the honor through uh, trial combat, aka uh, who or what he kills and and how. If you ask me, Jungle Hunter acts more like an enforcer. As far as the twist ending at the end of issue two, I will admit that I was not prepared for it at all. <laughs> that was one big old info bomb that was dropped at the end. You, you didn't expect it either with, with General Phillips warming them away uh, from it earlier. Uh, just, just a great ending for a comic. I, I remember sitting back and my eyes widening as I saw that explanation. <laughs> like, huh. Because it is a really cool twist and a great dramatic note to end the issue on. The beauty of that moment is that it takes Schaefer's greatest strength, his toughness in being really great in a fight, and makes it the catalyst for an even bigger problem. So I have to respect Drew Hayden for pulling that off. As for uh, the jungle uh, hunter possibly being enforcer, I mean, that definitely seems like it could be the case, and it adds to the depth of Yachia's society and the uh, different factions that exist in their culture. It just makes the Predators even more interesting. Anyway, the third issue returns to Raish's perspective, and from here there's kind of a they-live moment as Raish is able to see a fleet of cloaked Predator ships through the Yachia helmet that he took from the climb scene. While I'm not sure if the helmet would actually work that way to human sight since Yachia see in infrared, it is a cool moment. I, I will give it that. And honestly, the sight of a fleet of Predator ships in low atmosphere is a scary thought. So they really did a good job of framing the issue. Sometimes it's possible to get away with a nitpick or a small plot hole if you offer something really cool in exchange, and I think they did with this scene. Mike, did you have any thoughts on the helmet and how it works in the comics? I would have to say that I agree wholeheartedly uh, about your analysis. Uh, the optics uh, would be based on Yaucha eyesight and, and therefore would fundamentally be off, like you said. Uh, there is no way, no matter who is looking through that through that helmet that the picture would have been uh, would have looked anything uh, like it was when Ray saw it. I mean, they showed it like it was, you know, as you said, the glasses from from they live uh, where you can only see with the glasses on. And that is not how I picture a Yaucha helmet working. Uh, but I imagine there are way bigger Predator fans than me that could probably answer exactly how a Yaucha helmet works listening to this episode. If that if that person is you, uh, we would love to hear from you in the comments uh, just how that might work uh, for detecting Ration Captain McComb when they look through it. Uh, but let's get into the rest of Concrete Jungle, Steve. Sure thing. Uh, the rest of the issue deals with two different plot threads. Uh, Raish is dealing with an internal cover-up within the department and the feds, who are trying to shut him down while the Predators prepare their attack on the city. Meanwhile, Schaefer has been taken captive by the uh, Colombian cartels, and he has to escape while also being hunted by another Predator. Now, Raish is more of a Murtaugh to Schaefer's Martin Riggs, so it's easy for him to be overshadowed by how cool Schaefer is in the book. But Verhaden does a good job of giving both of his heroes uh, something interesting to do while making the narrative connect well. We will be seeing a bunch of lethal weapon similarities in these films, especially in Predator 2 next time. But I think this, uh, it's this comic that really made the lethal weapon formula work in the context of the Predator franchise. Um, I don't know what it is, but the lethal weapon formula works perfectly for Predator, and I can't figure out exactly why. <laughs> but Mike, do you have any ideas about why those two approaches feel as well as they do? 
I, I think that it works well with Predator because in the case of Concrete Jungle, you need both perspectives to show the vast range of effects that are that are the opposite reaction to what the Predators are doing. And the Lethal Weapon formula just works perfectly in that. Race really provides the more street-level guy with the wife and pension coming up. Without him, we don't get to see ourselves in the story at all. Without Schaefer, the story would not drive forward like a car from Twisted Metal on a fucking mission. <laughs> How is that for your answer? <laughs> this is a PS1 fan uh, awards a point of inspiration for the Twisted Metal reference. <laughs> but yeah, I can totally see that being the case. I mean, Raish is a viewpoint character, whereas Schaefer is the badass action hero that we want to see fight the monsters. So that sounds like a good take to me. Uh, the last issue brings the threads together with Raish and Schaefer uh, reuniting back in New York to stop the Aljucha evasion. Along the way, Schaefer decides to recruit Carr to help him stop the Predators, which I guess makes Carr the Leo Getz of the comic. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Anyway, the uh, Predator shows up to try to kill Carr, only to be uh, driven off by Schaefer and Rage, who raided the armory and walked off with some high-grade Colombian cartel weaponry. It's not every Predator story where a dude shoots a, a Predator with a rocket launcher, but it's awesome. <laughs> Especially when it's followed up by, we've only just begun, which is even funnier if you read this book right after watching 1408, not the carpenters. <laughs> that is funny. And we just covered 1408, so I was in the same boat on rereading the comics. Plus, the rocket launcher from Raish was a very nice touch. I, I really like that. Uh, they only talked about it in, in The Predator, so it was nice to see one in action here. Uh, but there is a big thing that is being left out here, and that is General Phillips' plans for John Schaefer. Uh, Phillips was hoping Schaefer would die at the hands of the jungle hunter in Columbia. When he didn't die, uh, they had to capture John Schaefer and force him into their backstabbing plan. The general's plan was to stop the possibility of something as powerful as the self-destruct device that was used in Columbia going off in the city. We'd be talking about 300 city blocks at least, and, and that is assuming that they used the same yield on the weapons uh, that they used in, in, in the jungle in New York. To facilitate this outcome, the general planned to give them John Schaefer on a platter. He was Dutch's brother, and they assumed that they had that they had come in force to take revenge on humanity for the loss of their man in Colombia. That is General Phillips' fucked up plan I was talking about earlier. I can't exactly see the Predators respecting that kind of cowardice, so you're right about that. This is the kind of thing that I'd expect out of Carter Burke, not out of somebody who's supposed to be an experienced soldier. But anyway, I think what really gets me with this issue is how over-the-top the story gets at the end. It goes into full action film mode with a fight with the Predators, like even more so than some Arnold Schwarzenegger films. They, they casually brutalize some of these Predators by the end of Concrete Jungle, and it looks awesome on the page, but at the same time, I can't help but wonder if the Predators came off a bit weaker after Schaefer just dispatches all these Predators in the way that he does in this issue. I'm personally a bit torn because I can see validity to both lines of thought, but where do you stand on this, Mike? I do not see the Yaucha respecting cowardice either. There, there's no way General Phillips' plan would have worked. As for how easily the Yaucha are taken out at the end, let me put it simply. Look at all the damage that just one 
uh, City Hunter or more, and two Jungle Hunters did. Comparatively, I have to say that I agree with your assessment there. Just killing one of these things is extremely difficult. And, and I definitely think the story was just rushed to a conclusion because of the page count. Uh, that final battle should have been much bigger. But I do like that uh, once it stopped being a fight and actually became a war, that the Yosha just left. I mean, that's not what they're here for. Yeah, I can get behind that, but I'm not sure about the ending, I have to admit. I can see the line of reasoning behind the idea that there's no sport in continuing to wage open war in the streets. I think it's cool that the Predators leave because they wanted to and not because they were driven off. Still, I think you're right in that the lack of space in the issue forced a resolution in short order. I'm also not sure what's sporting about attacking the city for the safety of your ship rather than sending hordes of Predators down for close quarter combat, but whatever. Uh, the Predators probably wouldn't want to kill all their prey like that anyway, and they'd return to Tund again once the Fuhrer died down a bit. To be honest, even though there are bits about the ending that I have questions about, this series is so much fun by, by that point that I felt I got my money's worth reading this anyway. They just don't make hardcore action comics like this anymore, and that earned some points from me. All in all, Concrete Jungle is a good series to pick up, even if it deviates a bit from the later films. Uh, Mike, do you have any final thoughts on Concrete Jungle before we move on? Well, I, I would also recommend Concrete Jungle, as Steve did. Um, it is a fun read, despite the hurried ending. I would recommend The Predator, the original year's omnibus as well. Uh, but I do have a little bit more to say about the film. It would seem that in the comic sequel to the Predator film that the Yaucha are vengeful. Uh, this does not seem to be canon, a canon thing, though, as though outside of the story. Um, I don't know about any Yaucha holding grudges or coming back to avenge an action. Um, but it fits well, for the, well enough for the story. Uh, one of theirs was forced to commit suicide in an attempt to take out Dutch 2. And when his ship went back to Yaucha Prime, his kin were not happy about it at all. You'll notice that the jungle hunter clan sent a Yaucha to the place where the previous predators, predator had died. I think that the Yaucha was sent to investigate uh, what happened to the jungle hunter clan in the 1987 Predator movie. Uh, since he removed his mask, they don't know what happened to him exactly at the end there. I also have to wonder if one of the fallen Yaucha kin uh, was not an elder of some sort, or if, if there wasn't another high-ranking Yaucha and his family uh, to bring this kind of wrath. I mean, the whole fleet just coming in force to the planet. Uh, I don't know of any other Predator stories where this kind of response happens. So that's why I'm assuming someone with authority had to have been in the mix there. At least that is the impression I got. Uh, what about you, Steve? Can you can you come up with another reason why so many ships came in response to the death of just one hunter? Not off the top of my head. It's probably true that the predator that Schaefer killed was a high-ranking clan member who was out on a hunting trip. It could also be that the Yaucha thought that they had some kind of deals with Phillips, and they might have seen Schaefer killing the, the Yaucha as a violation of an oath. Cultures like the Yaucha that prize honor and warrior virtue would also take oaths seriously, maybe even to the point of exacting a blood price against a perceived oathbreaker. Maybe they just left after feeling that the Yaucha had extracted sufficient blood from Phillips to make up for the death of their clansmen. Uh, that's the best I got. Um, as, as for my final thoughts on Concrete Jungle, it turned out to be quite good. While there are definitely some flaws in it, as we mentioned in our discussion, the end result is enjoyable. Not to mention that Shaper is just a really cool character and his dynamic with race really works. It, it's a good way to follow up on a classic and iconic film. 
it, it really is a great sequel to the first film. And in many ways, I personally find it superior uh, to the Predator film, uh, which we'll be getting into next week. Next week. Um, I would actually love to see them make a concrete jungle movie at some point. It probably will never happen, but a geek can hope. Yeah, I think the closest we got to that is Predator 2. Anyway, um, our discussion of Predator has run a little long already, so we'll leave Predator 2 for another time. When we return, Mike and I will talk about both the film and the comic book adaptations, as well as the surprising differences between them. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope uh, that you'll check out our other shows on the Omen Comics Podcast Network. Until next time, uh, thank you all for listening, and thanks to all our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.